Happy Monday, my Liberty Love Bugs. And before we get into today's episode, I want you to stop what you're doing. I want you to pause this week. Well, okay, don't pause this because then, then you won't hear what I'm going to say. But I want you to go and subscribe to the X. Pat Money Show. You can find this wherever you find podcasts. You guys know how this stuff works. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, everywhere podcasts are found. You know the drill. You got to find the Expat Money Show hosted by my friend Mikkel Thorup. And if you're a libertarian, if you're someone who values the ideas of liberty, if you agree with statements such as taxation is theft or war is murder, well, then the next question is what now? What next? And Mikkel Thorup answers that question each and every week on the Expat Money Show. He helps listeners find ways to legally reduce your tax bill, to protect your assets overseas, and to come up with your escape plan for when the shit hits the fan. And uh, I don't know about you guys, it seems like the shit's been hitting the fan quite a bit here in the U.S. lately. So you cannot find a better resource than the Expat Money Show to figure out your potential escape plan, figure out how to stop fueling the warfare state. So head over to expatmoneyshow.com. And we also want to invite you to join the conversation over on Facebook in a special Facebook forum, the Expat Money Forum. You can find that at expatmoneyshow.com slash forum. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here's your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. All right, my guest today is the author of three books, including his latest, Stoicism and the State House, and he's also running for his fifth term in the West Virginia House of Re- House of Delegates, that is. Uh, he has received national attention for his Defend the Guard Act, which would prevent state National Guards from being deployed overseas without an act of war declared by Congress. Very pleased to welcome Pat McGeehan. Pat, are you ready to roar? I was born ready. All right. Excellent. That's the attitude we like around here at Lions of Liberty. Uh, But Pat, not everyone is born ready to roar. Some people have to kind of learn it along the way. How did this all start for you? How did you first get interested in politics overall and more specifically uh, the ideas of liberty and the principles of liberty? Well, I never dreamed that I'd end up a politician. I uh, grew up in a military family. My father was an Air Force bomber pilot. And so my Um, Family followed him around from base to base early on throughout the Cold War, and I grew up, um, you know, a red-blooded American patriot ready to fight the commies, Um, um, as I guess uh, folks in my generation probably did in my circumstances. Um, And uh, anyway, so I always sort of wanted to follow in his footsteps. Um, I actually went to college in Colorado Springs at the Air Force Academy. And uh, after I graduated from there, I became an intelligence officer and did a a tour overseas, mainly in the Middle East. uh, But parts of my uh, deployment over there were in Afghanistan and that really started to change my perspective on um, uh, politics and foreign policy in general. And uh, I was always pretty curious about the world to begin with. Um, But I had a close friend I met in the Air Force, um, James Aragon, who I think is a fan of your show, actually. I I know the name, and I know um, he also wrote the foreword uh, to your latest book. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, that's right. He did. And um, uh, so so we were um, deployed together and um, I was actually his boss, even though he was uh, much more experienced and much more uh, smarter than I was. And we really formed a friendship and a bond, especially overseas. Um, And we we spoke a lot about um, just the strange nature of what exactly we were doing in the uh, Middle East when we looked around and saw nothing but desert. And I remember the first time when I landed in the Middle East, um, I first got off the uh, aircraft, uh, walked out onto the tarmac. It was about 130 degrees and looked around. There was nothing but desert and just Air Force cargo planes uh, flying uh, one in after the other, sort of like something that you could see out of the Berlin airlift, uh, just essentially, you know, delivering supplies. And my first thought that came to my mind uh, was uh, 
uh, what an utter waste of resources. Right. And, uh, uh, you know, it, it was strange to me to think that because at the time in my uh, early to mid 20s, I was a George W. Bush Republican. Um, you know, after 9-11, I was just, you know, rah, rah, let's go get them. Uh, but then, you know, things just started changing around a little bit and uh, started questioning what the heck we were doing over there. And I guess that was first the first domino to fall. I was just a typical Republican before that. Um, and uh, uh, anyway, um, so uh, fast forward a little bit. I got out of the service and uh, I uh, moved back home to West Virginia. That's where my extended uh, family's from. And, um, uh, I got involved in politics after I started a couple businesses and I noticed that the, uh, state house representatives in my area, um, really weren't, um, too concerned about the average small business owner. Uh, and there was sort of this good old boy system that West Virginia is known for that's very corrupt and I could see that going on in the area that I'm from in West Virginia, which is actually the northern panhandle of West Virginia, which is uh, just due west of Pittsburgh, really. Um, and so I noticed a lot of corruption. So a vacancy became um, came about in the uh, state house in my uh, district. So I decided to run. Um, a Republican hadn't been elected from my district then in 2008 for something like 55 years because it was a heavily, you know, democratic, uh, region, but for better or worse, uh, I ended up winning and that was my first foray into politics just because I thought, you know, well, I can do something and make a difference and, uh, be like Mr. Smith goes to the state house. And then when I got down there, I realized, um, how bad things really were, but at the same time, um, my Air Force buddy I was telling you about, Jim Aragon, had sort of turned me on to this um, mild and meek and very gentleman-like uh, figure named Ron Paul. And uh, I remember reading the first couple books that he had written in 2009, I believe. And uh, I became very fascinated with his philosophy. And uh, I remember watching a debate he was in that year in the Republican primary. And he said something to the effect of, well, he was given the uh, concept of blowback. Right. Um, uh, the famous Rudy Giuliani moment. Yes. Yes. And I, and I remember thinking, you know, something like he's not allowed to say that, uh, you know, and, uh, but, but I knew it was the truth. You know, there was just something in me that, that knew it was the truth. And, um, had you heard the term blowback before as someone who had been in the military and been overseas? Is that a concept that was all talked to, at all talked about? Or was it something that maybe just a lot of people knew in the background, knew in their minds, but only when you heard someone like Ron Paul really come out and say it and spell it out, did you go, oh, yeah, of course, that, of course that's true. Of course we know that. I was a military intelligence officer, and I never heard that term. Really? Uh, yeah, until he started speaking about it. Um, and so, uh, I mean, I knew the, the, the concept, I guess, but yeah, I, I never heard that term before he, um, made it famous, you know, um, through his presidential runs. But, um, I'm curious yeah, so, to what, to what extent you encountered like the local populations, uh, when you were deployed or were you more sort of just in the military side of things? I mean, did you ever get a sense from people you actually encountered that were perhaps from these areas about how they actually felt about, uh, the U S presence there? A little bit. Um, when I was at Bagram Air Base a few times, you know, uh, I, I mingled with some of the uh, locals, especially at their bazaars or, or the, the marketplace. Um, but other than that, I was really um, a intelligence briefer for the uh, senior ranking general in theater and uh, an intelligence analyst, essentially. And so so I was um, um had, um, you know, basically duties that were uh, more isolated from um, your typical convoys and forays out into the, um, the, the, the different provinces. So, yeah, so, so no, I, I, it, every now and then I did have some contact, but for the most part, no. But, um, yeah, so, but, you know, I just started noticing um, that, uh, um, 
this didn't really seem winnable. And not to mention that we were losing a lot of good men and women and seemed like we were, um, you know, killing, unfortunately, a lot of innocent men and women overseas uh, in the region I was at. And it just didn't seem uh, something just struck me as, as wrong. And I couldn't pinpoint it because, you know, I had always thought we were always in the right. And so I didn't have some sort of um, systematic, comprehensive philosophy to try to nail down my feelings. I just knew something was wrong in my gut. So that was kind of the first turning. My father was in the Air Force as well, um, a little bit older than you, uh, and he was he was been uh, there back in Vietnam. And he's relayed to me before that even when he was there in Vietnam, and everyone knew the mission, they knew they were quote unquote fighting communism. Uh, even then, people you know he would talk to uh, you know amongst themselves, and they would there would be a lot of this talk of like, why are we really here? Are we really doing the right thing here? So I I feel like that has got to be something that's in the back of the minds of a lot of people in the military when they actually get on the ground and they actually see what they're doing. Uh, I'm sure the majority support the mission. Uh, for no other reason than that's the mission they signed up for. But it does seem that from a lot of people you talk to, even people in the military that haven't really developed some kind of political philosophy, there is that often that background sense uh, that something's not quite right here. And that seems to be why someone like Ron Paul uh, picked up so much support from people in the military like yourself. Yeah, you're right. You're definitely right. I remember one distinct moment, and you'll you'll have to ask my uh, my um, my good friend uh, Jim about this moment we were riding back on uh, the bus from the uh the uh, headquarters um that was sort of off to the side on the, the base we were at in the middle east and uh they have all these tvs all over the base in the middle east that we were at and they have them pretty much throughout all these outposts um in the middle east and afghanistan and iraq and they basically broadcast uh, what's called armed forces network and uh, it's just the only channel you're allowed to watch out there. And, and you know, they have um, baseball games on, football games on. They'll show a couple movies every now and then. But that's the only channel. And uh, the commercials in between are pure propaganda. And I remember we were riding back on the bus, and they have these TVs on these charter buses. They would take us back and forth from our destinations uh, across the base. And I remember one commercial was something about you know d-day june 6 1944 patriotic american gi stormed omaha beach we must always remember their sacrifice and uh, it was just very cartoonish and very and i was watching it and um i, I remember um turning to he'll he'll recount this story better than me um, um and i recount this uh this this feeling and and, and i turned to him and i said you know this is just pure propaganda. I think I was only 24, 25 years old at the time. I'm like, you know, this is sort of absurd. So, you know, there was just a lot of strange things going on and I could never reconcile what the heck we were doing there because we were nation state building, but um, uh, that wasn't the original purpose. I didn't think. So, you know, I mean, after that, uh, I got turned on to um, a number of different uh, uh, books. I just, couldn't stop reading uh, Austrian economics. I read uh, Ludwig von Mises' masterpiece, uh, Human Action, twice. I think that's 1,200 pages long. So I read that twice back in 2009. Um, and so I just couldn't get enough. I read Murray Rothbard. I read, of course, Hayek. I read some of the earlier Austrians uh, from the late 19th century. Uh, and then I moved on to a lot of philosophy. And um, um, so I've sort of been at it. Um, since and and once I just devoured all this information, I, it was sort of like uh, I sure of, I, I'm sure you've heard this expression before. It's sort of like taking the red pill, like pulling yourself out of the matrix. And once you're out, you know you can't go back in. Once you take the red one, there's no taking the blue one. Yeah, it's it saved my soul because I just gotten elected to the house, the state house, and then at the same time, this was was happening. This sort of transformation. That's really and, interesting. You were almost like a, a, a reverse or a, a backdoor Ron Paul Republican. Like, there's a lot of people that had those values and sort of were inspired by Ron Paul to run for office. Uh, you kind of went the other way. You just ran for office because you saw a sort of general corruption in your district and just felt like, you know, you could do something better there. And then only after you were elected, did you actually sort of develop these principles and start to you know learn about this stuff? That's really interesting. Right. Right. And it was, you know, it was hard uh, it was very difficult at first because there was a few, you know, you, we always have um, 
you know, those, those, those one or two things that we got to get past to adopt the entire philosophy. And, uh, I remember mine was Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> it was because, uh, because I was always fascinated by Lincoln. Libertarian rule number one: You must you must abhor Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> yeah, well, well, it's it's funny because uh, at the at the Air Force Academy, my uh, uh, I had but uh, several military history classes, and one was on the history of the American Civil War, and um, Lincoln is sort of worshipped there. And uh, I remember after I graduated, the first thing I wanted to do was go to Gettysburg. I'm a big Civil War history buff, and uh, and uh, it was great, you know, and. Um, but um, but Jim, my my former Air Force buddy, I was just telling you about. Um, uh, he uh, he gave me uh, Thomas DiLorenzo's book, The Real Lincoln, and and that's what really did it for me. When I when I read that, I thought, yeah, yeah, I, everything I've been taught was was pretty much um, a myth. And the red uh, pill took took fully took hold after that, huh? Yeah, that, that's what happened, you know. And you can ask him about it too. So. So, uh, um, anyway, so that, that's, that's what happened to me. And, um, I've kind of never looked back, um, since then. Uh, so yeah, I've stayed involved. Um, um, this is my, uh, well, I'm running for my fifth term and, um, you know, so it's been difficult, you know, sometimes it's like, you know, um, somebody expressed it to me this way when I was complaining about, um, um, going the route I did because, of course, you don't enjoy all the luxuries and the graft after that, right? And I was just sure. just jokingly complaining at one point. I can't remember who told it to me and said, "Yeah, you know, steak tastes good in the Matrix. You should have stayed in." <laughs> right, yeah. And uh, and I go, but I'm very glad I did take the route I did because I do believe it saved my soul. And as a you know Roman Catholic, I take my soul pretty uh, seriously. Hey there, kitty cats. I need to take a quick time out here to tell you about another amazing libertarian podcast. This one is hosted by our good friends, Nate and Charlie, patrons of this program. Of course, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. Always be plugging. Uh, but these guys are plugging Liberty five days a week. That's right, five days a week. I don't know how they do it over at Good Morning Liberty. Of course, you find these guys wherever you find podcasts. But one thing I like about these guys is their ability to market. And these guys are great marketers. Because they got an amazing domain name for their podcast, BernieLies.com. If you go to BernieLies.com, you will find uh, Good Morning Liberty. And these guys are talking about current events every day. They are both uh, involved in the healthcare industry. So they have seen firsthand how government intervention can really shape, craft, and damage an industry when uh, politicians get their grimy hands in there with regulations and all sorts of awful, awful things. So please do check out the good friends of ours, Nate and Charlie over at Good Morning Liberty. So how has this sort of uh, philosophical revelation that sort of occurred while you were in office, how has that shaped your approach to, you know, your the actual office that you hold? How has that shaped, you know, how you look at different bills and how has it shaped how you interact with your fellow Republicans who, a, a lot of whom I imagine don't share this sort of consistent of a, of a philosophy? Yeah, um, well, of course, when you have this sort of uh, uh, philosophical approach, you have first principles that you develop and those first principles sort of guide your decision-making uh, through the legislation that's presented to you um, and, um, um, and and how you um, are able to judge, you know, what's the, what the right course is and what the wrong course is. Um, and so a lot of people don't understand that. And a lot of people just don't have any framework to, or any standard at all. And that, that's the most dangerous thing, because if you don't have any first principles or any framework whatsoever in order to um, judge legislation by, um, you know, if you don't have some sort of objective standard, then it's very easily to be swayed one way or the other uh, and be swayed by your own self-ambition and temptations, even if you want to rationalize that you're really not being swayed by that. Um, so I'm very fortunate in that respect that I did develop um, a very consistent, systematic uh, political philosophy because it's 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 really helped me um, uh, in the long run stay consistent um, 
even when the going the, the going did get tough. Um, and uh, and honestly, I never thought I would be reelected um, this many times. I, I thought a few years that there was just absolutely no way I'd get reelected. Um, but um, you know, for whatever reason, um, it, it worked out, and uh, I think my constituents, for the most part, I think they. Um, I'd like to thank this anyway, that they, they sort of have some sort of um, trust that uh, even though they might not understand um, certain votes or uh, certain bills that they thought they might agree with and I voted against, I think they trust that at least I'm doing it for um, purity of reason. So They know that you're not a sellout, that even if they don't know why you're doing something, they have they developed that relationship with you over the years. They know you're not just kind of blowing with the wind. You're doing right. what you perceive to be the right thing. I'm curious if there is a certain type of bill or a piece of legislation that you can think of that you, you know, might have been either for or against that you knew that the majority of your base, at least uh, reflexively or at their gut level, would probably disagree with your decision on. Is there anything that kind of comes to mind? Sure. Um and or does everything come to mind? Does nearly everything come to mind? No, there was uh, there was um, a couple tough votes. One was in late 2016, uh, about um, maybe four or five weeks before the general election, and I had um, you know opponents um, running against me, and there was a massive flood in West Virginia earlier that summer of 2016. It made nat nationwide news, actually. And um, it was devastating. And so, of course, um, uh, you know, maybe a month, month and a half goes by, and the legislature is called into a special session to approve, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of taxpayer dollars, you know, of, of relief funds to build um, new houses for people's house, uh, people who, who had their homes, um, um, wrecked and, and, uh, uh, rebuild, you know, other different private entities that were destroyed, such as, I remember, I remember one, um, private enterprise that was planned on being rebuilt with these, uh, with this, this taxpayer money, this relief money was some sort of dairy queen in a small town, uh, that just stuck out in my head. It was strange, but um, it was the only vote in the special session, and it was a widely covered uh, day because, you know, all the media was there to get interviews afterwards um, um, about, the, you know, what people thought about the flood, how long it would take to recover. And, you know, that sort of thing is a moral hazard when you continually subsidize people to live in floodplains. And so um, – um, so I voted no, and I was the only one that voted no. And, uh, you know, I just thought, well, that's it for me. Uh, you know, it's right up <laughs> before the general election. It's been fun. And, but, uh, and uh, so that's goodbye. It was nice, you know, a nice run, but uh, that's it. And, uh, you know, and I, and I was, you know, attacked, of course, by my opponents for the vote. And the news did all these stories. And Pat McGeehan wants Dairy Queen to stay closed. Right, right, that kind of thing. But, uh, you know, um, surprisingly, I uh, I won overwhelmingly. Wow. And I, I was like, well, okay. I, I mean, I did a few interviews, and I just said, hey, look, we can't afford it. You know, if we keep doing this, um, they're going to try to raise taxes. You know, I think it's a lot better if the, uh, different communities get involved. We've already got so many different private Individuals volunteering to drive massive trucks down there full of food and relief items. I'm not sure why, um, you know, we'd uh, want to, you know, take money that we don't have uh, from the from the uh, uh, the rainy day fund is what they used it from, and uh, and 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 and, um, and try to rehabilitate things with the government. And lo and behold, there was a huge scandal with all that money, um, you know. Um, going into the next year and the year after it, you know, like two years later, they hadn't even rebuilt like one house. I think they had rebuilt like three homes. How predictable, at least for, uh, you know, people of our mindset, extremely predictable. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it was a lot of corruption, um, a lot of embezzlement. So, um, so, you know, um, if, if you know the lessons of history, these things are pretty easily uh, predictable. So, 
So I think there was a certain amount of vindication in that particular vote, but there's been others too, you know, but, uh, but, uh, you know, you just sort of have to stay the course and take the lumps when you need to, but, um, make sure that people know, um, the positive things you're going to agree with that you're doing. Uh, when you um, when you have those opportunities. Pat, I want to talk a bit about uh, this concept, this philosophy of Stoicism. As we were talking about before the show, this book, your your book, Stoicism and the State House, mysteriously appeared, appeared at my house uh, earlier this year. So maybe someone listening is the one who actually sent me this book. Uh, but we thought I thought it was funny when uh, our friend Remzo uh, connected us together and uh, we, I saw that and he mentioned your name and I looked down and just saw, oh yeah, I have his book. Uh, but yeah, the book is Stoicism and the State House. What can you tell us about Stoicism? What exactly is Stoicism? for those you know, treat me like a two-year-old who has no idea what, what this concept is <laughs> well stoicism is an ancient philosophy uh it first appeared in athens around the year 300 bc it was founded by a guy named zeno of sidium um and it was uh, a leading uh, school of thought in the uh you know the greco-roman world um uh, for hundreds of years, I guess to summarize the philosophy, um, it it is a Socratic philosophy, um, but it really is. It's not. It's it. You know, unlike the the philosophy in academia, um, which is really consumed with minutia and uninter- uninterested, really in practical living, Stoicism is uh, really focused on on living itself, and. One of the largest principles that Stoicism sort of um, is is formed around, it's called this this principle of the dichotomy of control. So you should only focus on what you have direct control over and anything that you do not have direct control over, you should sort of put off to the side and dismiss and try not to focus on that because um, it would be uh, sort of irrational to continually worry about things that you know you don't have control over. That's easier said than done. But this dichotomy of control principle is uh, one of the fundamental principles to the Stoic philosophy in general. Most people would probably recognize, well, many people anyway, probably with your audience would probably recognize some of the more famous Stoics. Um, you have Marcus Aurelius. Of course, he wrote, uh, uh, it was really a diary or a, a memoir, well, pretty much a journal he kept um, when he was um, emperor of Rome in the uh, late um, second century. And it's called The Meditations. And uh, he was very much um, the, uh, I guess you could say, Plato's philosopher king. He was uh, very much a, a, a stoic. You would also, uh, some of your listeners might recognize Epictetus. Uh, He's my favorite. Actually, I carry a copy of Epictetus's um, Enchiridion, or um, it's it's translated from the Greek, uh, either the manual or the handbook. And it it essentially teaches you how to um, conduct yourself throughout the day and and live the Stoic life. Um, So... What it, in the legislature, you are going to be confronted, especially if you have beliefs like we share, you're going to be confronted, you're going to be in the minority, and you're going to be confronted um, with um, animosity, and um, a lot of people are going to uh, not exactly like you. You're going to make a lot of enemies inadvertently because, unfortunately, people can no longer really distinguish between opposing an idea and opposing a personality. Right. Well, yeah. Um, Especially now, I mean, it, much more so probably now than when you first took office. Right. Right. So it teaches you um, to focus on only what you can control. And it, it really all wraps around the pursuit, pursuit of virtue. And so if you're pursuing virtue, um, namely the four cardinal virtues, wisdom, courage, uh, justice, and temperance, um, if you're pursuing these virtues, and you're only focusing on um, what you have control over, um, it can bring about a certain amount of peace as a byproduct of that because, you know, your conscience is clean. And uh, you know you're doing everything you can to do everything right, uh, 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 as right and moral as possible. Um, And if other people call you names or make fun of you or you're the butt of all their jokes or... 
um, you know, um, once you really get good at this philosophy, you can become very effective because it also really engenders a lot of, uh, cultivates a lot of um, courage um, after a while. If you can really harness um, focusing on, on only what you can control. And uh, once you are able to sort of master that piece of it, um, a lot of other people will start paying attention because there's a lot of um, new uh, freshman legislators that come in, especially on the Republican side, that say, you know, I wanted to get in here and make a difference. And I wanted to really stand up for what I believe in. And, uh, you know, the people in leadership, like the Speaker of the House, they're just telling me to do whatever they say. And they don't really care about, uh, I guess, values or the ideas I cared about or thought we were going to be advancing. You know, they're making all these compromises and uh, they're not really too interested in anything other than themselves and going to these gourmet receptions put on by interest groups after hours. You know, getting free alcohol. It's got to be tempting to those freshmen who maybe they come yeah. in with the ideals, but then they see, well, look, these fancy dinners do look pretty nice. I mean, everyone seems to really like you when you go with the flow, when you follow, do what the speaker <laughs> right. says. I'm sure many of them do just do just not, you know, do fall away from their principles right. and from their goals and just kind of fall in line with the crowd. But if you if you if you have someone that's uh, standing up and, and and speaking the truth in front of God and his creation on the house floor, which is sometimes a a big no-no because a lot of times they want to have the vote predetermined before they run any legislation. Right. And if you follow this philosophy, well, you just don't, you know, you don't do those behind the, uh, behind the closed doors uh, deals. You don't do the vote swapping um, because, you know, that's in a way um, can violate one of the virtues and uh, yeah, even uh, if it's a vote you might have agreed with, you're still through going through the wrong process and not letting it play out in a truthful right. way. You're still right. really going against your own principles. Right, right. You're not debating it. So so if all of a sudden these newbies, if they see a guy who is uh, is is voicing the truth with strong, logical arguments that are very rational, um. That's inspiring sometimes. And a lot of times, you know, not all the time, but uh, sometimes that can overcome the the um, the pressure that the the leadership like the Speaker of the House and the and the majority leader and their staff, even though they have much more say and power and influence over the agenda and they can make a lot more promises or issue a lot more threats. They control the, all the lobbyist money and who gets that for re-election. Still, you can offset that sometimes in a transparent way by making these powerful arguments, um, um, by voicing truth, you know, um, on the House floor against the policies they're trying to push, which many times aren't in the best interest of your own constituents anyway in the long run. So it doesn't work all the time, of course, but. Um, I find it to be a much better tactic than the age-old um, sort of proverbial horse swapping, just bide your time, make deals, you know, and sometime, someday you'll get into a position of power. And then you could finally do what you want to do. And, and by that time, you've compromised yourself so much that you forgot why you even got involved to begin with and you're sort of lost and there is no more convictions really it's just well i'm now finally in power and uh, we can just do whatever we want to do do you ever have fellow delegates that come up to you whether it's fellow republicans or even you know opponents from the other side of the aisle that come up to you and say you know i gotta be honest i was gonna go a totally other way on this bill but after what you said out there you know i realize i gotta i gotta you know go in a different direction yeah i mean it happens a lot and sometimes it's reluctantly though because uh, i find that politicians respond to two things pleasure and pain Hmm. and uh if you are making strong arguments against a bill um especially when they don't expect you to all of a sudden stand up and start just you know um, delivering some sort of um, firm speech you know uh with that's very coherent in a logical format um, in front of the press, you know, uh, on live television where, you know, constituents from around the state are tuning in 
then all of a sudden they find themselves in a predicament. Even though they might have done the handshake deal with leadership behind closed doors, now all of a sudden somebody's exposing that this bill might not be very good and they have to make a decision now and all bets are off. And they say, hey, listen, pal, I know I shook your hand. I know you promised me this, but this guy's kind of making everything uncomfortable. Now everybody's paying attention. He just put us all on the spot here. So now yeah. we're on record and we don't actually have a counter to his argument because he's right. So what do we do? Right. So, so that, that, that's, you know, and you can imagine that doesn't make you the most popular guy at the cocktail uh, circuit <laughs> either. <laughs> I imagine so, you don't find yourself invited to, uh, you know, the same fancy dinners and, and that sort of thing as a lot of your other, uh, you know, no, no, I'm fine with that, but, you know, I uh, it's funny because I um, I was trying to I was uh, you know I'm a Catholic I mentioned that and uh, but I needed a practical um, uh, uh, philosophy of life I guess to to implement to deal with this adversity and um, uh, very uncomfortable social situations that you find yourself in at the state house that um, because you're in very close proximity with a lot of these uh, other state reps. And um, so that's how I, I, I came to the Stoic philosophy. I remember uh, a philosophy class I took my sophomore, my, my sophomore year uh, in college. And I only remember the class because the subject matter um, had to deal with uh, a person I'd actually met just months before um, the class uh, that I'm speaking of, it had to do with um, Admiral James Stockdale and uh, anyone that most Americans have, don't remember Admiral James Stockdale. But uh, if they do, they probably remember him as the running mate for Ross Perot in the 1992 presidential election. Um, and uh, uh, he was um, sort of mocked because of his poor performance, what was deemed anyway a poor performance in the lone vice presidential debate of that election season i was 12 years old at the time but i do remember my dad um who was very upset of how the uh, the media treated jim stockdale um i don't know if you remember the uh, dana carvey skit from saturday night live making fun of him and and it was just a shame because this guy was one of the most courageous and honorable leaders from american history uh, but he came out in that debate and he wasn't a politician and he said something like, uh, who am I? Why am I here? But it was a deep philosophical question. If you actually watch the rest of the debate, he did really well. Um, he, he's just a deep thinker. But anyway, he was uh, a Naval Academy graduate. And after that, he went on to uh, Stanford and he got his graduate degree and um, he was exposed to classical philosophy there, namely Stoicism. He was deployed to Vietnam uh, shortly thereafter, and he was shot down. He was a Navy pilot, and he was shot down over Vietnam and um, um, ejected, and he was captured, and he was uh, he spent seven and a half years as a prisoner prisoner of war. He was a, the Navy's senior ranking officer uh, in the what they call the seven Hanoi Hilton. Seven and a half years, my God. Yeah, seven and a half years, but four of those years, they put him in solitary confinement. Huh. And two of those yeah. four years in solitary confinement, they kept him in leg irons. And so... Um, the fact that he even but, came out able to speak sentences is incredible. I right, mean. right. Well, he credited his entire ability to endure all of that and still carry on and lead, inspire all the other American pilots that were junior to him in rank. Um that were kept at that uh, infamous uh, prisoner of war camp in Hanoi. Um, he credited his, his ability to get through all of that uh, with the Stoic philosophy. And uh, um, so it was a testament to, to the philosophy itself that it actually works. Um, it's, it's meant to be able to confront adversity and overcome it. I mean, and talk about so, like, situations you can't control. I mean, that is a situation where he really had no control over anything right. except for his own mindset. Yeah. I mean, he was. Yeah, exactly. That's that's it. He was tortured probably two dozen times too there. And but anyway, I I met him before I had that philosophy class uh, in college. And uh, he, he he showed up and gave a briefing or a lecture on uh, character my freshman year. And I got his autograph and, you know, he was a Medal of Honor winner and one of the most decorated um, 
American uh, uh, warriors uh, of all time. Uh, he was such a humble guy. And uh, um, so it was a great honor meeting him. It was just briefly, you know, I was 19 years old. But that always stuck with me because later on when I had my, uh, you know, introductory philosophy class, I think it was like an introduction to ethics. They covered Stoicism briefly and they, they, they covered Stockdale because he had written a few books on Stoicism and his time as a prisoner of war and how it helped him get through the experience. And, um, you know, at the time, I'm a young kid. I'm 20 years old. I could barely shave, really. I don't even need to shave. And, uh, but, but, and I said, you know, this is neat and everything. Um, but, but later on when I was searching for something to deal with, um, the adversity at the state house and, uh, ensuring that I would, would never break. Um, um, I remember those experiences. I remember the philosophy. I was just sort of carried back to it. So, um, so, you know, and I, I find no conflict between, uh, the Stoic philosophy and my Catholic faith either. So, they sort of go hand in hand. Actually, some of the greatest um, church fathers, such as uh, Augustine and uh, and Saint Thomas Aquinas, were were directly and indirectly influenced by the Stoic philosophy. I got to imagine for you as well. That must be somewhat of an inspiration, because I mean, if if uh, this guy can go and you know maintain his Stoic attitude, his Stoic mindset through seven years of being imprisoned and tortured and, and all of that, ah, surely you can deal with, you know, some pressure from a, some lobbyists or some, some other politicians. I mean, that seems like no big deal when you think of it that way. Oh yeah. Right. Right. And the key is just to one, one, one thing you learn is that uh, you don't become attached to, um, to the office, you know, and then that, and if you're not attached to, cause you know, what, what's the biggest thing that politicians really care the most about, in general, that we always hear, they holding care about holding on to that office, holding on to that. Power. Yeah, holding on to it, re-election. And uh, if you're not attached to that, and you're indifferent um, because you just want to make the right choices because it's it's virtuous and it, and and you want to do it because um, it has value in and of itself, um, regardless of the consequences, then you know you will do so because you're no longer really attached to having to get reelected. And, um, sometimes it just ends up working out, you know, that's what I've been doing. And, you know, it, it, it seems to be, it seems to gain a lot of trust too. And I get, you know, and, and I've developed a lot of great relationships and, 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 and fostered a lot of trust with a lot of Democrats who are more progressive, maybe on the, on the other side of the aisle, especially with that defend the guard bill that you brought up. Mm-hmm. So, but the book, you know, I wrote covers that, and then it covers, um, Cato the Younger, who is uh, one of um, one of the great uh, senators from ancient Rome, who was known to ardently practice the Stoic philosophy, and he was uh, Julius Caesar's arch enemy, really. And he's got a he's a fascinating character. So the middle part of my book covers him and the decline and fall and ultimate collapse of the Roman Republic before Caesar essentially took over and proclaimed himself dictator for life. So, so you can notice a lot of parallels in the story, the sort sort of the, the narrative I wove the, to, to, to politics today and what's going on in our country too. So, yeah, well, if you if you do want to learn more about Stoicism, the book is Stoicism and the State House. Not everybody is going to be lucky enough to have it just mysteriously show up at their house, uh, <laughs> but uh, I'm sure they can get it on all the normal channels, Amazon and that that sort of thing. But uh, Pat, I want you uh, before you, we wrap up here, I just want to uh, ask you a little bit about your current race. You are up for re-election coming up here, and uh, man, what a talk about Stoic! You came on to the, did this podcast interview with me after you went through a whole debate with your opponent. So uh, why don't you just tell us a little bit about your race? Who is opposing you right now, and uh, you know how? Do you see this race turning out? I mean, I feel really good about it. Um, you know, I have deep family roots in my district, and that and that, and that helps. I'm optimistic. I, uh, uh, I, I, I've um, you know raised a decent amount of money, and uh, you know, and, and I, honestly, I didn't put a whole lot of effort into raising money. Um, it's just something that I um, caution myself about. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I feel really good about it. Um, I can't say that, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm nervous about, uh, how to end up sort of indifferent anyway, but I really do feel, uh, uh, like, um, 
you're, we'll pull off another victory. So, so, um, yeah, with that respect, in that respect, um, I'm, 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 uh, very optimistic and glad really. So, so, uh, we'll see how things go though, but you know, I feel pretty good. Well, if there's anyone in, uh, in your district or out there and, uh, might not be familiar with your campaign somehow, why don't you just give everybody the little roundup of how they can find more information uh, about your campaign specifically? Uh, well, I've got, uh, you know, I'm on Facebook. You can always shoot me a message, uh, private message on Facebook. I've got, a, a you know, the pol- my political page, which is Pat McGeehan for House of Delegates. In West Virginia, the lower chamber is called the House of Delegates. It's a traditional name from Virginia. Um, and, uh, you know, my, they can email me, send me an email, Pat McGeehan. 2014 at gmail.com. Or, you know, if you really just want to text me, uh, my cell phone number is 304-374-7018. Risky maneuver and, giving uh, out that phone number to this audience. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Our, our fans are wonderful people. Yeah, yeah. I've heard a lot about you guys, really. I've heard a lot about you. All good. Hopefully good things. Okay, good. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> We're doing something right then, Pat. Pat, uh, it's great having you on, man. And I wish you the best of luck with everything you got going forward. I'm sure we'll be hearing from you for a long time. Uh, you read a couple books. I imagine you'll probably keep doing stuff like that going forward. I am kind of curious before I let you off the hook completely here. Uh, do you have any intentions or plans or thoughts? I know your focus has always been on this specific seat on your local district. Have you thought about applying this this you know stoic mindset of yours and, and kind of doing this at the higher level, at the national level? Yeah, I have considered it in the past, but I try to resist my own personal ambitions um, because I think um, a lot of constitutionalists or libertarian-lean Republicans or libertarians, how whatever you want to call the uh, the the guys that think like us, guys and gals that think like us, um, sometimes they make the mistake of ignoring practical wisdom and you have a lot of cheerleaders or the politico types that talk them into running for higher office. Hey, you need to run for Congress or the U S Senate or governor. And it's just not practical. They can't raise the money and, um, and they end up losing. And if I had all those different various individuals, uh, still in the legislature with me, who were of like mind, um, we could have really made a whole lot of difference if they just sort of resisted the temptation to um, sort of move up, I guess you could say. So I've thought about it. I'm not going to ever rule it out. But um, at this point, it it's probably just not for me, um, you know, because I'm not a, I'm not an independently wealthy guy for one, and uh, uh, I don't exactly get the all the lobbyist money for <laughs> for for campaigning. So You're definitely not getting that Dairy Queen lobby money. We know that. <laughs> That's right. I do like Dairy Queen though. <laughs> <laughs> well, Pat, it's been awesome having you on the show. And yes, to to be clear, Dairy, Dairy Queen is wonderful. We just don't think they should get tax money. That's all. Uh, <laughs> it's been awesome having you on, Pat. I wish you the best of luck uh, in your race. So keep up the great work and keep on roaring stoically, of course. Hey, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. God bless. All right, my itty bitty Liberty Kitty Cats. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Pat McGeehan. Really had a blast talking to him, not just about his political life, but about this philosophy of stoicism. I think this is something we can apply, not just in the political realm, but everywhere in life. If we let truth guide us, if we let truth guide our actions, if we live, act, and speak with integrity, we're going to have a lot better outcomes. That's just a a great way to live, a great way to think. So really appreciate Pat and really uh, wish him the best of luck in his race there in the Virginia House of Delegates. Also want to remind you, it's not just me here on Monday's where I chatted up with leaders in the liberty movement like Pat McGeehan. You've also got the rants and raves of the rambunctious Brian McWilliams every single Wednesday with his weekly shot of comedy, culture, and liberty on Electric Liberty Land, while John Odie Odermatt wraps things up every single Friday with his hard-hitting, his incredible look at stories from the broken criminal justice system on Felony Friday. You get all three of these podcasts. All of them come to you right here in the Lions of Liberty podcast feed. Three shows for the price of one. The price is free, my friends. You really can't beat that. If you want the price to be more than free, because, you know, you guys like to spend money, don't you? We're capitalists. We're consumers. Head over to Patreon.com. 
patreon.com slash lions of liberty where we have an outstanding amount of bonus content for you we've got a brand new conspiracy corner coming this week we also do all sorts of bonus live streams in the secret lions of liberty pride facebook group and it's football season that means we've got degenerate gamblers each and every week where uh brian odie and rico take a look at the gambling lines but they also take a look at a bunch of ridiculous stories from our ridiculous lives we have known each other since college for over 20 years now and a a lot of stuff has happened in there a lot of fun ridiculous things and they happen to come out always on degenerate gamblers it's really one of the most fun shows that we put out here on the patreon and of course all of our patrons get a 20 percent discount on all of our merchandise and we have some killer merchandise available now at the lions of liberty store we have the brand new taxation is death t-shirt we also have the wax on tax off wax on tax off t-shirt we've got a lot of awesome gear in the new lions of liberty branded lines over at lionsofliberty.store so be sure to check all of that out and if you just can't get enough of lions of liberty if you've gotten through all of our bonus content all of our other feeds guess what the hosts of this program we partake in a few other podcasts as well brian odie and rico as soon as they're done recording in degenerate gamblers for lions of liberty patreon every week they also go and record bravo and beer a drunken look at all sorts of uh reality type shows that i don't watch and never plan to watch, but I have a blast listening to them talking about it each and every week. So check out Bravo and Beer wherever podcasts are found. And while you're there, if you're into comic books, if you've ever been into comic book stories, if you're into the movies coming out right now, or if you just like to hear my voice, you can check out the Second Print Comics podcast. You can find that, of course, wherever podcasts are found as well as secondprintcomics.com where myself and fellow libertarian, fellow podcaster, Remzo W. Martinez take a whimsical look at the comic book events, characters, storylines that not only shaped our fandom, but shaped the characters that you see in so many movies and TV shows today. We have an absolute blast doing that each and every week, so please do check out the Second Print Comics podcast. If I haven't given you enough homework yet to get you to Wednesday, I'm not sure what to tell you. I guess you're going to have to try some of our, our other podcasts out there, like the Expat Money Show, Good Morning Liberty, some of the sponsors of this program. Uh, But until next time, my friends, until next week, live long and live free.